This is a podcast from the South Ham Project at University College Dublin. South Ham, which is funded by the European Research Council, is a five-year comparative study of the wide range of literary outputs and mediating institutions produced in the Southern Hemisphere and Strait Settlements from 1780 to 1870. For more information on the project, go to southham.org. This podcast features a paper from the second South Ham Seminar Series, Taste, Value and Cultural Capital. The paper, The Last Extremists, was given by Professor Heather K. Love from the University of Pennsylvania. The event took place on the 12th of October in UCD and was jointly organised by the South Ham Project and the UCD Centre for Gender, Feminisms and Sexualities. Podcasting is by Real Smart Media. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to reconnect with Sarah, who I met in Australia. Um, and thanks, everybody, for coming. I, I really appreciate it. I, you know, I, I guess um, this really is kind of about uh, the current conjuncture, how to think about questions of uh, queer and transgender, gender queer representation in the present. Um, and uh, it's, this piece is going to come out in a book from MIT Press called Trapdoor, which is kind of about the politics of trans visibility, which, you know, you know, in the media has had just a, a kind of huge transformation, which is partly what I'm reflecting on here. So uh, I would say check out that volume. It's going to be really, really interesting. Um, but since there's a lot of strands of uh, stuff that I'm thinking about in other contexts, um, I hope we can have a lively discussion that connects this to some other issues that people are, are thinking about here. So... Um, thanks a lot. All right, so um, Alison Bechdel published the first drawing from her long-running comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, in the radical feminist newspaper Woman News in 1983. Um, this is that image. Over 30 years later, in the spring of 2015, a musical based on her best-selling graphic memoir, Fun Home, a family tragic comic, that came out in 2006, but the Broadway play um, was in 2015, it opened at Circle in the Square Theater. The musical, adapted by Lisa Crone and Janine Tesori, broke box office records and won five Tony Awards, including Best Musical, Best Book, and Best Score. Bechdel's memoirs, Fun Home, and then in 2012, Are You My Mother, won her widespread recognition, critical acclaim, and a place on many college syllabi. The appearance of Fun Home on Broadway made Bechdel a star, although a reluctant one. Uh, her story can be told, the, the story of her kind of meteoric rise from publishing in, you know, Woman News, right, this um, kind of marginal radical feminist publication to hitting Broadway. Um, it can be told as the story of an artistic genius's long road to recognition. That story is true, but it's not complete. During the same decades that Bechdel deepened her art and took on an autobiographical project of Proustian ambition, new audiences emerged for queer, lesbian, and transgender work. Her early drawings of, in her words, whacked-out lesbians <laughs> exemplify minor or niche representation, both in their kind of um, rough-and-ready style, but also where they were published, where they circulated, where they were sold, who looked at them, right? These are minor representations. But Fun Home despite the fact that it is about a lesbian who is pretty whacked out, is widely hailed as a story of universal significance. In a 2015 profile uh, in The New Yorker, Bechdel expressed ambivalence about the universal framing of her work. This is Bechdel. 
It's funny, when the memoir came out, I bristled at critics who qualified the struggle it describes as universal. I felt like they were trying to co-opt my identity. But it doesn't strike me that way anymore. I've come to the conclusion that we're all queer. There is no normal. Bechdel's vision of a queer takeover of the mainstream is very appealing, and it accounts to some extent for the cultural phenomenon of fun home. As the New York Times notes, the musical overcame, quote, enormous skepticism about its Broadway viability. The story of a middle-aged butch lesbian cartoonist grappling with the probable suicide of her closeted gay father does not scream box office. (laughs) The same New York Times article also notes that the play was, quote, unable to build the audience for a multi-year run on Broadway. So critically acclaimed, famous, but actually, you know, not cats, right? Um, (laughs) By whatever measure, though, the success of Fun Home is remarkable, while we may understand that success in the terms Bechdel proposes, um, we could understand that success, like Bechdel says what it is, everyone is queer now, another bleaker explanation also presents itself. No one's queer. That a story of a genderqueer childhood set in a funeral home in rural Pennsylvania would capture the imagination of mainstream theatergoers may not be that surprising given what the theater critic Hilton Alls and essayist um, Hilton Alls describes as Broadway's taste for otherness. Pointing to the centrality of outsiders and even the most traditional plots, um, he talks about Oklahoma. Um, Alls asks, quote, if American composers and lyricists were to jettison the idea of difference from their plot lines, would they still be writing American musicals? So difference is sort of normative in a sense um, in the framework of the musical. Also argues that American musicals integrate the threat posed by an outsider into the social order. But Fun Home works differently. It describes a thwarted longing for normalcy by Allison's closeted gay father, Bruce, and at the same time narrates Allison's escape from normalcy into a different kind of life. So his story of being in the closet, her story of coming out and becoming Allison Bechdel. Through her honesty and strength, Alls writes... Allison is able to, quote, articulate her choices and follow them openly. But if the brave choices that Allison makes go on to be applauded by sold-out audiences on Broadway, does the resolution of Fun Home, awkward, anxious child becomes assured adult lesbian artist, count as a break with normalcy or merely an adjustment of the norm to make it more inclusive? Is everyone queer or no one? Like many queers, I sat in the audience of Fun Home and Circle on the Square Theater, with mixed feelings. A longtime fan of Bechdel's work, I was happy but disoriented to see what, despite all evidence to the contrary, I still understood as a subcultural aesthetic greeted by such widespread and enthusiastic acclaim. You know, all of these broad, you know, sort of classic, you know, wealthy, white, um, older Broadway theater goers, sort of the audience for Broadway, just like crying um, next to me. I was just like disoriented. I considered myself hardened to such ups and downs, having witnessed so many waves of LGBT visibility come and go without leaving a trace on politics or everyday life. Fun home success might be just another flash in the pan. But it felt different because it formed part of what Susan Stryker, transgender historian and critic Susan Stryker, in a response to Jill Soloway's Amazon TV show, Transparent, which began in 2014, called An Utterly Transformed Media Landscape. This transformation included the rise of transgender icons from Laverne Cox to Chelsea Manning to Caitlyn Jenner, 
the runaway success of award-winning shows like Transparent, Orange is the New Black, which began in 2013, the popularity of books such as Janet Mock's Redefining Realness, 2014. It's all 2013, 2014, 2015. There's a kind of tipping point. And Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts from 2015. While some of these representations trafficked in familiar ploys, uh, for instance, the centering of the uh, uh, white, uh, you know, putatively straight heroine Piper Chapman, uh, her perspective in Orange is the New Black, they also introduced an unprecedented diversity in cast and crew and brought recognizably, recognizably queer and trans perspectives to a general audience. Fun Home won recognition as the first Broadway musical to feature a lesbian protagonist, but it was hardly a homonormative representation. Dealing with themes including intergenerational sex and suicide, it also focused significantly on gender queerness and through its representation of Allison, uh, at different ages, put several varieties of butch gender on stage. Taken together, these shows suggest that gender normativity was no longer a strict condition of mainstream success, as it long had been in queer media, right? So the argument traditionally is that, um, you know, you can look at sort of like gay and lesbian mainstream success, like people would point to like Will and Grace or, you know, Ellen or something, but or the L word, but that... Um, that the price of getting into the mainstream is to kind of jettison uh, gender non-normativity. That's, that's been a traditional argument, right? But here's examples of gender non-normativity making it into these mainstream productions, even if racial and class norms governing success remain mostly unchanged, okay? So I think that's sort of the transition. Legal and social changes over the past decade have made visibility feel less detached from the infrastructure of queer and transgender life. At the same time, ongoing violence against the most marginalized and vulnerable can make visibility itself seem not only irrelevant, but toxic. Still, understanding the limits of visibility does not necessarily protect one against its power. So as a white, middle-aged, butch lesbian, my identification with Bechdel's memoir is pretty strong. Though I resist the universalizing reading that Fun Home has received uh, in mainstream reviews, I'm also deeply moved by its success. So what I'm trying to do in this presentation is to grapple kind of in public and out loud um, with my ambivalence about this success um, and make sense of this new media landscape, um, thinking both about queerness and gender queerness, sort of thinking those together, um, and um, trying to grapple with my mixed feelings about these productions and the dilemmas of legibility and acceptance that they raise. So that's kind of the overview. We're going to focus down on a couple of these uh, representations, starting with one that's not uh, mainstream. In the summer of 2015, New York City performance artist Erin Markey worked through her own mixed feelings about Fun Home in a solo show called Deleted Scenes from Fun Home. Um, so that's the title of this show, Deleted Scenes from Fun Home. Uh, which, you know, is happening sort of like right as um, Fun Home is coming out. And she performed this at the Duplex Cabaret Theater um, in the West Village. So this is a tiny club, um, kind of sweaty, not air-conditioned, um, off of a, a sort of well-known piano bar in the city. The audience was made up mostly of queer people and genderqueer people in their 20s and 30s. Uh, tickets were cheap. Many of the people in the audience were downtown habitués, long-standing fans of Marky. In her opening monologue for the show, uh, Marky narrated her experience of going to see Fun Home on Broadway, 
emphasizing its emotion, the emotional impact of the play and her feelings of alienation while watching it. In an interview in Weird Sister, Marky describes being, quote, activated in a strange way by the musical for unnameable or unknowable reasons. So this is just a quote from that interview with Marky. When I listened to Fun Home over and over and then saw Fun Home, there was no way for me to process the show on a level of just liking it or not liking it. I could not afford myself that kind of calm or democracy. I could only really watch myself because I was being kind of intense. I felt mirrored by the three versions of Allison and Bruce and angry that this basic acknowledgement of a kind of person had never happened before on Broadway and fascinated that there was this flashlight exposing the contents in a hole inside of my brain and annoyed at empowered by the PR and emphasis on universality and generally just hangjaw. Comparing the experience of seeing Fun Home live to having a flashlight expose the contents in a hole inside of my brain, Marky emphasizes both her deep identification with the content and artistry of the show and the pain she felt in the public exposure and universalization of Bechdel's subcultural material. I mean, very similar to to the response I've just narrated for you guys of my, my own. So in her show at the Duplex, Marky described her obsession with Fun Home at length and recalled her efforts to get the money together for a Broadway ticket. The setup is comic, but the monologue turns somber when Marky describes how affected she was by seeing female masculinity represented on stage. She slows the pace of the monologue, emphasizing the emotional impact of this rare moment. Um, and this is an image from Fun Home the Musical, um, with what's known as the three Allisons. Let's say on the left you have the you know adult Allison, the cartoonist, um, looking back on kind of a um, you know early teen and um, child um, Allison, right? So we have these kind of um, three three figures and embodying different versions of gender non-normativity. One of the most memorable songs in the musical is. Um, a a celebration of the swagger and bearing of an old-school butch. These are um, quotes from Lisa Crone, um, who never appears on stage, okay? Um, And so uh, there's this kind of um, uh, tribute um, song to the kind of amazing um, outfit of an old-school butch, including the ring of keys that she wears on her pants. Um, And uh, so this song uh, isn't uh, there's no there's no sort of visual equivalent on stage but it it recalls a moment from the graphic memoir um, where Allison is sitting in a diner with her father and that old school butch watch walks in as uh, making a delivery to the restaurant and so um, you have the you have Allison sort of spying the, them in the top frame spying her in the top frame and then in the bottom frame in exchange with her dad so I'm going to narrate that um, with more detail now um, the, the song Ring of Keys dramatizes a moment in Bechdel's memoir when a truck driving Bulldike comes into a diner where Allison is eating with her father. Bechdel writes this moment as a scene of recognition. Um, this is the caption. I didn't know there were women who wore men's clothes and had men's haircuts, but like a traveler in a foreign country who runs into someone from home, someone they've never spoken to but know by sight, I recognized her with a surge of joy. In the memoir, Allison's childhood joy in seeing this woman is doubled by Bechdel's loving and detailed drawing of her, right? It's this kind of beautiful panel um, that captures all of these different elements of the clothing um, and and body and haircut and so on. 
But Allison's joy is shadowed by her father's disapproval. He asks sternly, is that what you want to look like? In an article in Variety, Crone talks through the doubt she had about dramatizing this moment in for the musical. Um, so this is Crone. I was concerned with how to write about butchness for what would presumably be an audience that is not completely made up of lesbians, to, to say the least. That's me. I didn't know how Allison could talk about that delivery woman without the audience laughing at her. This is a, a stock target of ridicule. I didn't believe we could do it. So... The hypervisibility and devaluation of the figure of the butch lesbian make representing her a tricky business. Um, with Tesori's encouragement, uh, they went ahead, building the song around the detail of the ring of keys on the woman's belt and dropping the term bulldike in favor of the less marked language of just right clothes. Okay, So they didn't think they could put her on stage um, as a celebration. It could only be as a target. Crown's account of her anxiety about Ring of Keys and Marky's description of sitting in the audience at Fun Home resonate with the moment in Bechdel's memoir when identification threatens to turn to shame. While Crone and Desori manage this difficulty by softening and abstracting the image of the old school butch, just take the image away, uh, turn it into language, um, Marky actually exacerbates it by making deleted scenes from Fun Home, right? So deleted scenes from Fun Home is about embracing the difficulty of the original text by going even deeper into the shame and stigma of gender and sexual difference. That's what deleted scenes from Fun Home is about. It's about what couldn't make it into Fun Home on Broadway. Markey recounts episodes from her life that wouldn't cut it on Broadway. Her surreal childhood sexual fantasies of hitchhiking as a pregnant prostitute um, and a story about a stint working as a stripper after college. In the opening monologue to the show, Markey introduces these deleted scenes by narrating the experience of going to see the musical with her friend, the transgender writer um, and film director, Silas Howard, TV director too. After the show, they stop in a Starbucks in Times Square to use the bathroom, and Marky describes her altercation with the woman behind them in line. We get to the front of the line, and it's Silas's turn to pee, and he's sort of chatting his way into the area of the bathroom and then shuts the door behind him. And then all of a sudden, I hear from behind me, faggots taking their time to get into the bathroom, having a conversation when there's people waiting for the toilets, faggots taking their time. Marky, who's from Michigan, has a vocal repertoire that includes a variety of Midwestern accents. After a thorough reading of the woman's outfit, um, her tank top, her fanny pack. She mimes this woman's speech using a harsh, flat intonation, hitting the F in faggots very hard. Recalling her reaction, Marky performs disdain with a trace of shock, and after a pause, she draws. And my heart started beating, like, really hard. And I was like, I'm going to tell on her. <laughs> as absurd as the moment is, Marky does tell on her. She tells the audience at the duplex. But she suggests here that the meaning of Fun Home the Musical is defined in part by its appearance in mainstream spaces of leisure and consumption, Times Square with the Starbucks right next door. And I think it's just interesting to note that this moment in deleted scenes from Fun Home is actually kind of a rewriting of the moment in Fun Home, right? It's, it's all about the hypervisibility and vulnerability of genderqueer people in public spaces, whether it's a diner or the bath waiting for the bathroom. Deleted scenes is not an attack on Fun Home, or an indictment of its arrival on Broadway. Markey's admiration for Bechdel's memoir and for the musical is palpable, 
Instead of critiquing the musical, she juxtaposes it with the kind of subcultural representation, comics and alternative newspapers, downtown cabaret, that nurtured it and reminds the audience of the violent social world it was meant to protest. The increasing acceptance of some forms of LGBT existence has diminished the urgency of this project of representation, apparently. New civil inclusions in the U.S., as well as an expanded media landscape, have made it possible to bring representations of gender and sexual outsiders into the mainstream um, at an unprecedented scale, and often on their own terms, or to some extent on their own terms. But there is, of course, a trade-off. Bechdel has addressed the compromises of mainstream recognition repeatedly and eloquently. In a New York Times piece, the interviewer asks Bechdel, do you think something's being lost now that the queer, the queer culture is becoming more mainstream? Are gay people like everybody else now? And this is what Bechdel has to say. We are. And there's a sadness in that. I wanted to think we were special, more highly evolved somehow. I really believe that in my youth. Obviously, that's ridiculous. We're the same as everyone else, and it's amazing that it, that, that is being acknowledged. But I feel wistful for the sense of being special. When gay people were rejected, there was this camaraderie and this sense of community that I don't feel anymore. I miss that. But I don't want to go back politically. So according to Bechdel, the loss of community that comes with rights and recognition is to be lamented. But she balances the desire for a sense of specialness with an awareness of the ultimate goals, political representation, and freedom from violence. Yet, as Markey reminds us, social recognition is tenuous and really uneven. Violence continues to proliferate alongside new forms of inclusion, and many scenes are still deleted. Okay, I'm going to move to a, a different um, text now, um, which is this um, 2015 book by Maggie Nelson called The Argonauts, which is um, a, a genre-bending memoir of um, Nelson's life with the transgender artist Harry Dodge. Um, and in this book, uh, Nelson uh, reflects on the contradictions of contemporary queer life. Um, so this is a quote from the Argonauts. There's something truly strange about living in a historical moment in which the conservative anxiety and despair about queers bringing down civilization and its institutions, marriage most notably, is met by the anxiety and despair so many queers feel about the failure or incapacity of queerness to bring down civilization and its institutions, and their frustration with the assimilationist, unthinkingly neoliberal bent of the mainstream GLBTQ plus movement. Like Fun Home, the Argonauts represents traditionally marginalized experience in ways that many have received as universal. Um, and this recognition, this kind of hailing of this book as a uh, universal story has garnered Nelson major critical and popular acclaim. It's like a, really a, a bestseller, um, even though... Uh, you know, it was published in Grey Wolf Press, which tends to be kind of a not, like a more minor press, but it, it's um, it's been it's sold hugely. Combining memoir with critical reflection on queer theory and politics, the book describes some traditional aspects of family life, childbirth, family illness, alongside new forms of kinship and embodiment, such as artificial insemination, step parenting, and gender transition. The mixture is important. The book describes what it's like to negotiate ordinary domestic cares in circumstances seen by many as extraordinary. The Argonauts responds to the situation of queer and trans people at a moment when new opportunities for recognition and acceptance exist alongside ongoing exclusion and violence. Nelson thinks through these contradictions using her own experience as evidence. 
Throughout the book, she chased at the inadequacy of the terms normative and transgressive to describe either this historical situation or the ways that people live in it. While it's no longer true that to be queer trans automatically renders one a social outcast, neither is it the case that gender and sexual minorities are seamlessly integrated into the social world. So the Argonauts is an attempt to account for new access to the ordinary experienced by some queers and some trans people, but while continuing the project of critique. Nelson contemplates the possibility that queerness will be universalized out of existence, um, citing a banner that appeared at a San Francisco um, gay pride uh, event, um, at, at San Francisco Gay Pride in 2012. So these two banners um, uh, read, one reads, capitalism is fucking the queer out of us, and the other one uh, reads, assimilation equals death, citing the um, ACT UP slogan, silence equals death. Nelson remarks on the difficulty of articulating goals that go beyond, quote, clawing our way into repressive structures. And yet her point is not only or not exactly to criticize LGBT assimilation into the army, mainstream media, corporate life, or marriage. Instead, she insists on the inadequacy of the opposition between queer radicalism and assimilation, suggesting uh, controversially uh, that, quote, perhaps it's the word radical that needs rethinking. Um, so, I mean, we can talk about this book's reception, which I think has had an interesting kind of life um, in, a, in the queer community and the trans community um, um, and has been controversial in the same way that uh, you mentioned this work on um, rethinking uh, anti-normativity has been. Nelson's key example for the inadequacy of the opposition between radical and normative is the family. Through an extended engagement with the queer critique of marriage and family, she argues that women and children are regularly turned into scapegoats for a despised normativity. She also locates queerness at the heart of the family, suggesting the perversity and surprise uh, covered over by the narrative of dull normativity. So the family's a lot more interesting, and marriage and long-term relationships are a lot more interesting than they're given credit for in this kind of anti-family discourse. In addition to treating her experience with Dodge, with Harry Dodge, Nelson engages with other examples of queer kinship and family. And she spends a long time thinking about um, Catherine Opie, the photographer Catherine Opie's photographs of queer domesticity and perverse motherhood. It's one of her key examples. So um, early in The Argonauts, uh, she mentions this um, famous um, photograph um, by Catherine Opie. Um, This is from 1993. It's called Self-Portrait Slash Cutting. Um, and she reads this, Nelson reads this image in relation to Proposition 8, the 2008 California ordinance that reversed the gay marriage decision. And so um, Nelson recalls the scene from her first year with Dodge, when the first year they're together, and Nelson casts herself as a bad reader of Opie's work. Um, and what she means by that, or what I take from that, is that she's trying to like pinpoint the photograph and make it mean only one thing. Dodge responds with a defense, although a low-key one, of the complexity of individual lives and works of art. So here's this um, scene between them. Throughout that fall, yellow yes on Prop 8 signs were sprouting up everywhere. The sign depicted four stick figures raising their hands to the sky in a paroxysm of joy. Um, So this is the anti-gay marriage campaign. The joy, I suppose, of heteronormativity, here indicated by the fact that one of the stick figures sported a triangle skirt. Protect California children, the stick figures cheered. 
Each time I passed the sign stuck into the blameless mountain, I thought about Catherine Opie's self-portrait cutting from 1993, in which Opie photographed her back with a drawing of a house and two stick-figure women holding hands, two triangle skirts carved into it, along with a sun, a cloud, and two birds. She took the photo while the drawing was still dripping with blood. Uh, quote, um, Opie, who had recently broken up with her partner, was longing at the time to start a family, and the image radiates all the painful contradictions inherent in that wish, Art in America explains. I don't get it, I said to Harry. Who wants a version of the Prop 8 poster, but with two triangle skirts? Maybe Kathy does, Harry shrugged. Who could want this, Nelson asks. In this kind of object lesson um, in her own, I think, education into rethinking her politics, um, I think we're meant to understand that her comment shows a lack of attention to medium uh, because she understands that any image of, of family, whether printed on a homophobic campaign poster or carved into a queer woman's back, means the same thing, that its meaning can be boiled down to one word, heteronormativity, and that it's a given that one would want to purge one's life of all traces of heteronormativity. These are the kind of assumptions that the book is going to try to take apart. Dodge's comment, though terse, points to the possibility that other forms of relation and satisfaction lurk within an image that Nelson finds both obvious and obviously distasteful. Through the book, Nelson continues to explore the vexed terrain of other people's pleasures through a sustained engagement with Opie's work. She returns to self-portrait cutting later in The Argonauts after she and Dodge have taken advantage of the brief legality of same-sex marriage in California. Um, they get married in a tacky West Hollywood chapel sort of um, spontaneously. Um, and uh, here's uh, another passage from the Argonauts um, where she goes back to self-portrait cutting. Like much of Catherine Opie's work, self-portrait cutting, which features the bloody stick figures cut into her back, gains meaning in series, in context. Its crude drawing is in conversation with the ornate script of the word pervert, which Opie had carved into the front of her chest and photographed a year later. So I'm, this is a little awkward, but I'm going to try to show you. So that's the quote, but then this is, this is the photograph, pervert. So it's in conversation with the ornate script of the word pervert, which Opie had carved into the front of her chest and photographed a year later. And both are in conversation with the heterogeneous lesbian households of Opie's domestic series. Um, so I'm going to just, I'm just going to take a second and just show you these because... Um, uh, just to give you a sense of what she's talking about here. So these are um, all in this series from the Opie produced from 95 to 98 um, called Lesbian Domesticity. And that they're also in conversation with Opie's self-portrait nursing from 2004, taken a decade after self-portrait pervert. So here's that quote again um, that I'm reading from. I'll just finish it up. <coughs> In Opie's nursing self-portrait, she holds and beholds her son Oliver while he nurses, her pervert scar still visible, albeit ghosted across her chest. Okay, so she says the work makes sense in the series. So self-portrait cutting, pervert, um, the domestic series, and the nursing portrait um, across like, um, like 10 years, basically. So if in her first reading of Opie's photograph, Nelson compares it to the iconic image of the family appropriated by the Prop 8 campaign, the stick figures, in her second reading, she frames it in the context of Opie's other work, um, in particular these images that represent Opie's body um, in a bunch of different contexts. Um, in contrast to the static storybook image of the family that self-portrait cutting responds to, Nelson reads the photograph as a historical image 
layered over the fading image of pervert, um, you can still see pervert, like, even as she's nursing on her, um, the carving on her chest. Um, layered over the, uh, sorry, um, pervert, and anticipating the image of queer motherhood to come. The turn to narrative is crucial in Nelson's refusal to collapse domesticity, motherhood, and care into a monolithic heteronormativity. Nelson revisits Opie's work one last time in The Argonauts, citing an interview with the artist in uh, Vice magazine. The interview comments, I, I think you are going from the SM, I think you're going from the SM scene to being a mom, and all your new photos are these blissful domestic scenes. That's shocking in a way, because people want to keep those kind of separate. Opie responds, they do want to keep it separately. So basically becoming homogenized and part of mainstream domesticity is transgressive for somebody like me. Ha, that's a very funny idea. Nelson responds to this quote like, oh, I'm really radical because I'm being a mom now, um, with suspicion, um, queer suspicion about domesticity. This is Nelson. Funny to her, maybe, but to those who are freaked out about the rise of homonormativity and its threat to queerness, not so much. Nelson acknowledges the real anxiety about the depopulation of spaces of public sex and um, the destruction of alternative kinship relations as perverts migrate into the nuclear family and into the domestic sphere. But she also critiques the position that would narrate Opie's story as one of assimilation or selling out. After acknowledging that what Opie finds funny or ironic about the transgression of her being a mom might freak out some other queers, Nelson writes, but as Opie implies here, it's the binary of normative transgressive that's unsustainable, along with the demand that anyone live a life that's all one thing. Nelson's reading of Opie calls out the reductive impulse that turns different ways of life into stick figure images of transgressive or normative ideologies. Instead, as in her reading of the palimpsest of Opie's body, she captures the historical layers and contradictions that make up any life. The radical specificity of this account is a tribute to the work of Nelson's mentor. Um, she did a PhD at um, CUNY, uh, City University of New York, um, under Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick. Uh, this is Nelson. The great mantra, the great invitation of Sedgwick's work according, is to, quote, pluralize and specify. As she argues, this is an activity that demands an attentiveness, a restlessness even, whose very rigor tips it into ardor. Nelson's Sedgwickian approach to queer motherhood and family, not seeing everything as just one, one thing, one story, frustrates dichotomies between normativity and anti-normativity. And I think in the rapidly changing and uneven situation in which queer and trans people find themselves today, these narrative and descriptive accounts um, with all of their kind of multiplicity are more useful either than the sweeping indictment or the welcome embrace of assimilation. Okay, I'm going to um, kind of wrap up now with one last example, all right? Um, and this is a, a still from uh, uh, an episode of the show Transparent that became very sort of well-known in the second season, um, which uh, in which, uh, you know, several of the, ca the, the characters visit um, a women's music festival that looks a lot like the Michigan Women's Music Festival. Um, so this was a long-running music festival uh, that started in 1975 as a kind of separatist space for women, uh, lesbian folk music, and then increasingly um, punk and other genres uh, made its way in. Um, but uh, the festival was extremely controversial um, because it uh, its founder, um, under pressure, basically articulated a 
uh, women-born women-only policy, which is to say uh, rather than admitting trans women um, or, um, you know, people who were living in different spaces along the gender spectrum, she said, you know, you needed to be born as a woman, uh, raised as a woman, and still identify as a woman to attend the, the festival. Um, uh, and uh, partly because of financial problems and kind of the world having changed a lot, but also because of the kind of controversies around this policy, uh, Michigan ended in 2015. That was its last year. So it's an in, in 2015 is an interesting year, right? It's like the rise of um, you know all of these new media productions that I'm analyzing today, um, and uh, the demise of Michigan. Which, you know, many people were very happy about, but it's an interesting moment to mark. All right, so I'm going to talk briefly about uh, this episode and which is called Man on the Land. Um, this concerns um, Maura Pfefferman, the trans woman character played by Jeffrey Tambor on the show, um, deciding to visit um, this festival and being unaware of the transgender exclusion policy. It seems like almost really um, not credible <laughs> that that would be the case since it's very well known um, by anyone in the queer community, but um, nonetheless, that's the conceit, all right? Um, so in the Man on the Land episode in season two of Transparent, several campers sit around a fire at this music festival discussing its transgender exclusion policy with Leslie's kind of um, you know feminist professor played by Cherry Jones, Allie Pfefferman played by Gabby Hoffman, which is Mara Pfefferman's um, daughter, and Mara Pfefferman. Mara has just recently discovered the existence of the policy and wants to leave the land as soon as possible. At first, the women greet her and get into a genial conversation about the popularity of SM at the festival. Soon, however, the conversation turns to sexual violence and male privilege, and open conflict erupts okay, between these um, you know, lesbian feminists and, um, and uh, Maura Pfefferman. Ali reluctantly followed... Um, so Hurt and angry by being called out as having male privilege as a trans woman, Mora heads back to get her stuff and leave the land. Allie, her daughter, reluctantly follows, gets lost alone in the woods, and sees a vision of Nazis burning the contents of Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute for Sexual Research Library um, and dragging away her transgender ancestor, Gittel, played by Harry Neff. So this picks up on a, um, a longstanding theme about the Hirschfeld archive, um, and analogizes the transgender exclusion policy to uh, the Nazi murder of transgender and queer people um, and to book burning, okay? Um, so, you know, kind of an interesting moment in terms of, like, uh, the power and problems of analogy here, right? Um, and uh, the New Yorker TV critic Emily Nussbaum discussed this use of... Um, the analogy to Nazi book burning as a gambit that risks glibness by conflating moral horrors. But Nussbaum, like many other critics, ultimately praises the episode for its risk-taking and political insight, calling out the campfire scene in particular for its nuanced dramatization of the conflict around the radical lesbian feminist exclusion of transgender women. As they sit around the glowing campfire chatting amicably, one woman offers a toast— Here's to the last remaining extremists. The wistful quality of this moment underlines a fact that is not represented in the episode, but which I think informs both its aesthetic and reception. That's to say the closing of the Women's Festival in August 2015 after 40 years in existence. So this came out, I think, in October. 
of two thousand December of two thousand fifteen. So Michigan's just closed. All right. Here's to the last remaining extremists. The panoramic, inclusive, almost ethnographic style of the episode, um, with its affectionate tribute to the pastoral, blissed-out pleasures of the festival, um, is trying to capture this world as if we were looking at it for the last time. Its strange rituals and intense fellowship of clothed and naked women of all ages, races, and body sizes. It's as if we're looking at this world for the last time, and there's a need to document it. This final dreamlike sequence suggests a comparison between the destruction of the Hirschfeld Institute's library and the trans-exclusionary policy of the Women's Festival. At the same time, it evokes the closing of the festival, which in its final years faced, among other difficulties, boycotts staged in response to its policy. This analogy, through its instability, suggests a potential alliance between radical feminists and trans activists who continue to fight bitterly but who nonetheless share a position at the margins of the mainstream. The campfire scene is, in this sense, a family portrait. Here's to the last extremists. The irony this scene points to and exacerbates is that once obscure conversations between marginalized social groups are now being staged for the benefit of a much larger audience. These are the conditions of the new media landscape. They're at a little campfire, but America is watching, right, on HBO, on uh, Amazon. Um, so the meaning of these these productions, each of these texts and um, productions that I've talked about today, is shaped by its overhearing by a public whose contours are still emerging. A book burning is not, in a way, the most apt symbol of this moment. Now more than ever, people are buying books while violence against women, queers, and trans people continues. Okay, thank you. That's the that's the paper. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Southam Project at University College Dublin. For more information on the project, go to southham.org.